Perfect. Uh, the uh, example of that is appropriate for today's lesson is the New Year's resolution. And that, of course, we all in our culture are real familiar with those. And we've probably each had a few of them ourselves, in which we've uh, failed to follow through on the resolution. Although at the time, we're real gung-ho for it. Um, I know people have usually the behavior beforehand on uh, New Year's Eve or even a few days before is that whatever you're going to quit, you do to excess uh, because you know you're going to quit for sure on, uh, on New Year's Day, right? So um, <clears throat> this is about like a resolution in which you're going to change something is really a repentance. And a repentance in its broad meaning means to change an attitude or to change your mind. could mean change behavior. It could mean change a direction. And uh, we have often attempted to do that and found that we just eventually went back to what we were before and didn't change. And uh, what uh, our passage is going to deal with here today is the difference between real change and temporary change, which in the end is no change at all. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 3, <clears throat> and we'll just review starting in verse 1. Uh, we're going to look at verses 5 through 10 today, and uh, let's open up in prayer and be thankful and grateful for God's word to be uh, humble also before him and to have the um, word of God speak to us through God the Holy Spirit. That's all that matters here when you're learning God's word is that you know that God is speaking to you. And uh, let him speak to you through his word. That takes humility. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have so blessed us with truth that comes from so many places in your word. I mean, obviously, it's all there, but there's so much to it from uh, Old Testament narratives to poetry to prophecy to exhortations to commands to letters that we read in the New Testament, uh, what we call epistles. All of it, Father, has, it's in a different manner and from a different time and from different people, but all of it is a seamless whole that reveals your will to us. And so we must look at each letter in each word as your message to each of us, to the church as a whole, but also to each of us individually, so that we can be changed and changed in a good way, which all of us need, but also to behold you so that we have a relationship with you, have a meaningful and personal relationship with you based upon the truth that you convey. There's no other way that we can know you. And so we ask, Father, that through your word, our hearts would be enlightened today on the meaning of what repentance really is. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So temporary repentance, I kind of mentioned at the first, is a arousal of emotion. And it's generally what it is. It's, we've all done it. I've done it. Uh, that we have a, either you know, a, a real emotional response generally to the pain that we feel from the behavior that we're engaged in and we want it to change and we're certain that it's going to change and it could be 
uh, diet, a quitting a vice like smoking or drinking or an addiction that is truly hurting you. And uh, it seems to be okay for a little while, but then you find yourself going right back to what you tried to change. And the reason being for that is clear in Scripture. And I think we all know it inherently that our hearts didn't really change. There's something that happens in the heart of man. Heart is like the seat or the center of his real being. That something there changes. And it's so changed that there's really no temptation to return to where you left or where you turned around from. So, you know, there are many, many, many more resolutions or desires for repentance. What I'm calling here today is a temporary repentance and so little change, so little actual change in people. And we know the reason for that. Um, And so John in the Baptist here in Matthew 3, which is in the continuation, the first four chapters of Matthew are about uh, us being introduced to the king of the Jews, to the Messiah, the son of man, son of God. And part of it is this forerunner who is John the Baptist. As we know, uh, John the Baptist is going to be the one that comes beforehand, before the Messiah. He is predicted to do so or prophesied to do so, to be his, the one who would come first and prepare Israel for the coming of their Messiah. Because they have to accept their Messiah or judgment's going to come upon them, upon the nation. And uh, that's John's mission. But what's also here is that John is going to bring a baptism that is unique in and of itself. Uh, It's not the same as the water cleansing rituals of the Old Testament. Some have thought it's it's, uh, just uh, uh, an extension of when uh, Jews would baptize proselytes. Proselytes were Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. There were plenty of these uh, in, the, in the early times there, in the first few centuries. Uh, and there was a ritual of washing if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew. And it kind of makes sense, right? As, as they were progressing from being a Gentile, which the Jews considered dirty and unholy, that they would go through this ritual of cleansing, but it's not the same as what John did, is my point. Um, uh, they, uh, it, it's just, it's not the same. And so because it's not the same, John's baptism is unique. But what it connects to is what John says about a coming baptism that's greater than his. And this is interesting, that John's water baptism, he says is for repentance. But then he says, someone's great, coming greater than I who's going to baptize you. And the one who's going to baptize you is the Lord, the Messiah, and he's not going to baptize you with water. And so John's baptism uh, seems to me to be a setup to a coming baptism that would change the world. In fact, change. If if the baptism of the Lord, the one, that, the baptism that John said is going to come from the Lord, if that happens to you, you are completely changed. And that is a repentance of repentances. I mean, it's the, the pinnacle of it. And to be not just changed in behavior, but changed in essence. Changed in creature. I mean, you're not even the same creature. You're human, but you're a new 
humanity. And this all happens to anyone who is baptized in the manner that John says the Lord is going to bring. And that is astounding. I mean, it's an astounding thing to happen to anybody. Uh, If, as the world would expect, that if such a change happened, that the person would look completely different or, you know, on a medical exam would turn up to be, wow, you know, completely different. If DNA was completely changed or something like that. But none of that occurs. When you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, you don't physically change, overtly change. Your appearance doesn't change. And this is just like God, isn't it? God is always like this. In which he doesn't do things the way man expects him to. And why would he? What we expect is coming from, uh, is the expectation of a fallen creature. Why would God follow the expectation of that which is fallen and sinful? He would not. He does things his way, which are not our way. And by faith, we come to realize that something incredibly different has happened to us. And don't get me wrong. It isn't as if there is no evidence of this. But the evidence of this change comes to you within, in your own heart, when you, and you see it. You see a change in you. Now, that change can be accepted. There doesn't mean that it's going to be automatically making you the best person alive uh, or to make your heart incredibly joyful or incredibly content or tranquil or peaceful. It doesn't mean that you're going to be what what God wants you to be in terms of behavior. But what God says to us is that the changes have been made. If you have been baptized through this baptism that John is going to mention comes from the Lord, if that baptism has occurred, then you have been completely changed and therefore are required to live the way that God has called you to live. And that's because of the change. The change is made for a manner of living, a manner of thinking. And so this is set up with the repentance of Israel. But the repentance that God is, uh, sorry, that John is calling for Israel, which is really God calling for it, is nothing new. It is not a new thing for them. This is an old thing. So in Matthew 3 1, it says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's our word, repent. It's a command. The verb is in the imperative command, metanoeo, which means to change your attitude or change your mind. And in the case in the scripture, that change is always a change of attitude towards God. And so repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, The verb at hand means to be near or at the doorstep. For this is the one, meaning now uh, Matthew is going to describe who is saying this, who John the Baptist is as he's prophesied in the Old Testament, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah 40, verse 3. So this is the one. Notice it's the voice. I love that. It's not the man crying in the wilderness. It's the voice. What matters is the word. What matters is the message, not the man. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. That was our topic yesterday. 
in terms of the fact that John accepted in humility the plan of God for his life. This plan for him was not the same plan as for the Lord or really for anyone else who would come again, who would be like John the Baptist. But like all of us, the plan of God for us is unique and we have to accept it. We're not to live out the plan of another, but the plan of our own. And whatever is in that, that God wills for us, we have to accept. John accepted it, and that's why his ministry was successful. If we accept it, no matter what our economic background, our status, married, unmarried, good marriage, bad marriage, family, no family, good kids, bad kids, whatever, rich or poor, God has a plan for us right in the place that we occupy and in that place that we occupy, we have work to do. And that's what God con is concerned with, is the work that we do, not uh, the circumstances that we're in. So then, in verse 5, we see the popularity of John. In verse 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. This mean that this is The districts around the Jordan means on the other side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, down through the wilderness of the Negev and so on, and possibly even out to the coastlands of which people have heard about John and they're flocking to him. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, hold on to that word, were baptized. See that were being baptized. It's a passive voice. And a passive voice means they're being baptized by John. They're not baptizing themselves. John is baptizing them. And that is going to become important in the next line. So they were being baptized by John, passive, by him in the Jordan River, as they, or when they. It could even be translated after they. But it, that doesn't matter. The participle here doesn't give us really a time stamp. It's as or when or after they confessed their sins, they were baptized. Baptized in water. Now, as we see here, Matthew doesn't lead us into a discussion of the meaning of water baptism. Um, many of us wish he would. <laughs> I don't know if that would have created more trouble than there has been with water baptism. There has been a lot of trouble with water baptism. Um, and, in fact, nowhere in the New Testament does go into a discussion, a really lengthy or detailed discussion, neither lengthy or detailed, of what water baptism uh, is really about and, you know, what to, to really define it, you know, when it should be given and all of that. Because it is obvious that the church uh, accepted or adopted water baptism and it was practiced regularly in the church, and it still is in the majority of churches in, in the West. Um, it's a ritual. There have been many controversies over it. There's to the point where violence has been done to people over it. If you read a little history of the Anabaptists, which doesn't mean they were against baptism. It means that they were, they were against infant baptism. And they were baptizing, getting baptized as adults, which at the time uh, in the, uh, the Middle Ages in Europe, this, but there was a huge, huge problem, late Middle Ages. Uh, <clears throat> So questions also about sprinkling, pouring, immersion, child baptism, adult baptism with the Anabaptists, uh, child baptism, Catholics, adult baptism is adopted by Protestants. 
Is it, should it be done at salvation? Or should one wait until one is dedicated or ready to join the church or so on, uh, or who at least has learned what it means? And so there's the question of when. Is water baptism, should, be, should it be administered at salvation or sometime after? All of these things, sprinkling, pouring, immersion, at salvation, after salvation, children, adults, on and on, they have been discussed and discussed and weighed. The same problem occurs that the scripture does not address these questions. And so that's why the problem continues to occur. But God has (coughs) purposely, as he purposes everything that he does, he has not decided to discuss it in the scripture at any length. And that's why there's such a conundrum about it. Which, I, you know, I've, I just chalk that up to the pride of people. That people are, uh, if they're going to fight one another over such a thing, means that there is pride involved. But that, fortunately for us, this is not our issue. But, of course, I felt I had to mention it. John's baptism, we should know, is not the same as the church's water baptism. So go to Acts chapter 19. We'll return to Matthew here in a bit. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. Just to document this, it should be known that John's water baptism is not the same as the church's water baptism. Now, this passage in and of itself is a confusing passage. But we, if anything's confusing to us, set the confusion aside. This is what I do. Not that I'm the standard, but... I've come to know over years of studying the scripture that if something's confusion, confusing, I can lay it aside and hope for the confusion to unravel itself. If I try to unravel it with my own intellect, I create false doctrines. Everybody does. You do not have a divine mind. <laughs> so uh, if something's confusing, lay aside the confusing, the confusion or the confusing part, and look for in that passage the things that you can understand. You know, the things that are plain. And hold on to those, and you could pray about it. Uh, ask God, I think you should, because as James says in James 1.5, we can pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom, pray for insight, but do not. Do not try to add to the scripture because something is confusing to you. I mean, think about that. A confused, finite person trying to make doctrines divine, uh, eternal doctrines that come from heaven, from God. And it's ridiculous. Anyway, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then? Were you baptized? So the fact that Paul asked this question shows us that water baptism was commonly practiced. We know this from other passages as well, but we see it here that that Paul immediately sees a problem and the first question he asks is, into what? Into what were you baptized? Notice the into. And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. 
Now, we see this in the Gospel of Mark, same thing, the same wording. John the Baptist appeared, in Mark 1-4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So notice it's the same phrase, a baptism of repentance. That is John's baptism. So in Acts 19.5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice Paul baptizes them again. So Paul doesn't, you know, in essence, say, well, that's good. You know, your baptism in John was good enough. Baptism for repentance of sin, according to Paul, is not the same as being baptized. And again, it's a water baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so... This baptism of John is the baptism of repentance, which means a baptism that is or did prepare Israel for the coming of their Messiah. And it was the same repentance that Israel was told uh, again and again and again through the prophets to exercise towards God uh, as they worshipped idols, as they... Uh, did not follow the law, as they didn't love their neighbor, as they didn't love God, and on and on, all that they violated of the law, they were told to repent of, or judgment was coming. And that happened. So we had the captivities, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Uh, and and it, even before then, when other nations would invade and enslave Israel, like in the time of the judges, or in the times of that there were bad kings and God could send famine. God could send, as he, as he mentions in the book of Joel, a locust swarm or a famine or close up the sky and not have any rain and so that the people would be without and they'd go through famine. Repent because judgment is coming. This happened over and over. And so John's baptism is of the same. But notice, it doesn't save anybody. It's a preparation of the heart for believing in the Messiah, as, as uh, Paul points out here. So, when they heard, so again in verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now, that didn't happen to you and me, did it? But this speaking with tongues and prophesying was to be a witness to those around them. Uh, look, look what happened here. And this was a, a real sign in the early church that when an apostle laid his hands on you, that the, by the authority of God, which he gave to those apostles, there was a great change that was made in people. Uh, it doesn't happen now because there are no more apostles. There's no need to give anybody the authority of a, an apostle uh, because there are no more. But the same thing happens to us, not the speaking in tongues and prophesying, but the absolute complete change. The change which is what? The Holy Spirit indwells us and we're baptized, as John is going to say, as we see in Matthew, that the one who is greater than me is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we see here clearly that John's baptism is not the same of the church's baptism, which is in the name of the Lord Jesus. John's baptism was a ritual cleansing. It was a ritual cleansing performed when an Israelite confessed their sins. So it was a baptism of repentance. Now, a repentance, as we know, 
can be temporary or it can be true. A true repentance is someone who does, in fact, change their heart. But a repentance can be temporary. I mean, unbelievers have true repentances, not towards God, but towards something else, where they give up a habit, habit or they change some manner of living. Unbelievers do this. And, but that's now, in biblically, a repentance is towards the Lord, and for that to happen to somebody, something real has to change in their heart. Uh, <clears throat> so as John is um, preparing the way for the Lord, Israel was to make their hearts ready to receive the Lord. And this is not the first time that Israel was exhorted to do so. Uh, and so just so uh, before I get into that, let's make sure that we... Yeah, that shows up pretty good. Probably not on your screen, but that's okay. Uh, you can, I didn't put it in my slides either. But anyway, uh, there's big changes here that happen that I want to point out. The, the timeline going across uh, here is the years, and as you see, the kings are on top. There's two main divisions that I want to point out, and one is the fall of Jerusalem which is there. Uh, and notice the prophets are down here on the bottom. And this group of prophets, uh, notice they're all bunched together from about 800 to about, well, to about the time of the fall of Jerusalem. And, and that's when the Babylonians come. That's right here when the Babylonians come. But then afterwards, after they return, this is when they come back from Babylon. So now I want to go over to a map. Here's Babylon over here. Uh, this, and so when you traveled to Israel or an invading army came, you didn't cut across the desert. You went up and around, followed the water, and they invaded, and they brought them back. And then, so, of course, <clears throat> the Israelites were told from here that they could return. And when they did return, we call this the post-exilic, after the exile, Israel. Without really, it's Judah because <clears throat> it's only the southern kingdom. And so they return, <clears throat> excuse me, and when they return, they have Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. These are the guys who are Ezra's a scribe. He's helping people relearn the Torah and the, Bible, or the Old Testament Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah are governors or, or, or leaders. And in this time, you have three prophets that are exercising their prophetic gifts. Uh, I would say there's more than three. There's probably hundreds. But these are the three that we know of that write books. And they're the last three prophets of the minor prophets, or what we can call the Book of the Twelve. There's 12 minor prophets, and together, uh, the 12 minor prophets really comprise a single work. Uh, and there's reasons that we believe that to be true. But what, the reason why I'm doing this is I want to point out to you that uh, first you have Zechariah who's going to prophesy at the beginning of this return from Babylon and the last one's going to be Malachi. And Zechariah is going to tell the people to repent. All right, but before we get to Zechariah, Let's see some repentances happening in First in Psalm 7 by David. God says through the psalmist, who here is David, if a man does not repent, 
He, God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. And we see this really commonly, that Israel, if you don't repent, that judgment is coming. In Jeremiah 5.3. Now, where's Jeremiah? If I go back here, he is right at, Jeremiah is here, right at the fall of Jerusalem. And that's when he's prophesying. He's in Jerusalem prophesying, just as God is saying, look, the Babylonians are coming and they're going to destroy everything. And Jeremiah is telling them, notice right here, uh, and there's multiple times he says this, Jeremiah 5.3, they have made their faces harder than rock, God says about Israel. They have refused to repent. When they refuse to repent, what's going to happen is judgment is going to come. Now, let's go back again and go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel's here. You probably can't see it on your screen, but he's right here. Same time as Jeremiah, it's just that Ezekiel is prophesying out here. Jeremiah is prophesying over here, uh, but at the same time. So Ezekiel's with the captives, and he says, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. And again, it's the same continued aspect of the ministry of the prophet who's going to be uh, appealing to the people to please change how you think and how you live and how you do because you are the elect people of God and your God has given you a law and you are required to follow this law. You are required to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. You are required to love your neighbor as yourself, which summarizes the whole law. We see over and over in the history of Israel, going back to our prophets here. I love charts and stuff, as you know. Let me get all the ink off here. All this history. It's wonderful history. It starts way back here with, uh, you have Saul, which is where Samuel uh, starts right after the judges. And on through all the monarchy. These are all the descendants of David. Uh, which actually become the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ when, before the kingship ends. And these are the kings in the north. Not one of those was any good. And the prophets were all sent. Notice all these prophets. And it's not just those. It's many, many more. Those are the ones that we know of. And on and on and on, God gives this message of repentance. It is no different than John's message of repentance. And Jesus says that John is a prophet, and John is the greatest of the prophets. He says this in the Gospel of Matthew. So John the Baptist is going to come up a few times as we go through the Gospel. And um, the Lord says that, therefore, as the greatest prophet, John is truly the last prophet. I mean, Jesus is the prophet, but uh, John is the last prophet of the prophets given to Israel. And his message of repentance is the same. Now, continuing onward uh, from Ezekiel, then as we get to the end, near uh, after the exile's return, we have Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is, again, after the exile's return, and for whatever reason, we're not told exactly what the exiles were doing once they had returned, but... God says to them, you see it here in the board in Zechariah 1.3, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. And it's very, it's a very typical common message from a prophet. 
But this is now going up to Zechariah hundreds of years. And with all of those prophets we saw in that chart, Zechariah is one of the last. But notice this. Then they repented. And man, oh man, that is rare. They, they actually did. They repented. They were like, you know what, Zechariah, you're right. And in this case, this is where they're building the wall of the city. They're rebuilding the temple. They have rededicated themselves to the Lord. They're following the law. They have Ezra helping them through to understand the scripture. And man, oh man, it must have been a wonderful time because the people actually repented. They did it. It's rare to see. And so how wonderful. But it didn't last. It didn't last. Because again, going back, I'm going to go back to my thing here. When Zechariah says repent, it's at the beginning. This is when they come home, right around Zerubbabel. They spend 70 years in captivity, and then they come back, and they rebuild. They're rebuilding. And here, between 500 and 400, 100 years, they're repented. And then a little while later, we have Malachi. And I want you to turn there. Go to Malachi 1. Because it's in Malachi 3, and we saw this yesterday, that that John the Baptist is in Malachi 3.1, that he's coming, and and in 3.1, the forerunner says, the Lord is coming to his temple. And in Malachi 1.6, God says, the son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. And then we find out as we continue to read that the priests in Israel were doing all kinds of things that were against the law. They were breaking the law. They were bringing to God the lamest animals they have. And I don't mean that actually in modern vernacular, the word lame, although it applies. But they were actually bringing sickly animals to sacrifice to God that they were probably going to put down anyway. They were worshiping idols again. But what happened? See, uh, up here on the board in Zechariah 1.3, they repented. But by the time Malachi comes, which is less than 100 years later, less than 100 years, they're not honoring God. And in Matthew, look at Malachi 2.11. God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? And so what we have here is a very common essay. It's a common amongst fallen human beings that they have progressed in their evil to say that evil is good and good is evil. And mankind has done this from the beginning. We're so confused and so sinful and prideful that we have truly, out of our idiocy, claimed something to be evil and we say it's good. Something evil, we we label it as good, and something good, we label it as evil. The same thing has happened here. So what was this repentance, this repentance here that is in Zechariah 1.6 where the people actually repented This repentance was temporary. 
It's just temporary. It's a New Year's resolution. All right, for them, maybe it lasted 20, 30 years. I don't really know how long it lasted, but uh, it didn't last. Because if it were a change of heart, if it were a real change of heart, you wouldn't find yourself 20 years later completely violating the things that you said that you loved, which was the Lord and his law and his temple and his sacrifices. The things that you were to bring to him and to honor him with and to worship him with. And yet, you're not anymore. That means that you didn't change at all. That means it was temporary. And when John, so now we fast forward because in Malachi 3, it says he is, where is he? Let's find him. He's the last. Mike, I didn't put it in my notes, which is a nice, where is Malachi? Where are you? There you are. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come from his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. How marvelous. So in the response to their temporary repentance, in response to the fact that they went from repenting to really dishonoring God, God's response is, I'm sending my son. That's in Malachi 3. That's the response. I'm sending my son, and before he comes, I'm going to send someone to warn you that he's coming. And that's exactly what we see. John the Baptist, the last prophet, the greatest of the prophets, is sent with this unique uh, ritual of water baptism in the Jordan. And it is for the repentance of sin, which as we've seen, God has asked his people to repent all through their history. This is a call to repent before the king comes. And this is the first time on the earth that the king has come. It's the first time that the son of David is actually here. The kingdom of heaven is near or at hand, as he said, which means the Lord, the king, the son of David is on the doorstep. And he certainly is, because we see him right here in Matthew 3, come to John to get baptized himself. And so John is sent with a proclamation of repentance from sin and an accompanying baptism that represents the identification with cleansing. This water baptism of John is an identification of cleansing. That's what baptism means. It means to be identified. And seeing the call to repentance in the prophets and Israel's failure to repent shows us that the proclamation of John, what it really is. John is the last of the prophets saying, repent. And Israel is not destroyed, but in a way they are. uh, Because Jerusalem will be destroyed and it has not been. The temple, the nation, even though Israel is there and were made a nation in 1948, that is not God's nation. Um, I think it's significant in terms of human history, but it's not the nation that God promised to restore with the Messiah, obviously. And that nation will not come again until the Lord comes again. And John is going to point this out at judgment. is on If they don't repent, judgment is truly coming. 
And so we find this in Matthew 13. So let's go back to Matthew, but look at Matthew 13.10. Matthew 13 is the center part. If you remember, well, you might not, but it was a while ago. Once we get through chapter 4, we'll revisit the chiastic structure of the Gospel of Matthew. But right in the middle of that chiasm, which points to the center aspect of the Gospel, is Matthew chapter 13. And it's when the Lord starts to speak in parables. And if you look at Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Notice it's the same phrase, the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. We find in chapter 12, just before this, that they, the leadership in Israel and many of the people had accredited all the power and the miracles that Jesus had to the devil. And when they did that, Jesus said it was a sin against the Holy Spirit, the revealer of the Lord. It was a sin against him and that it was unforgivable. And so in Matthew 13, we have not the fact that the kingdom is gone forever because he's revealing it to the disciples here, but that it is going to be postponed. And that's what Matthew 13 is about. All right, so we have repentance that John brings, which is the same repentance that God has been asking his people for for hundreds and hundreds of years throughout through the prophets. We saw in the Old Testament that there was a repentance after the uh, exiles returned, but it was temporary. And one wonders, because many are coming to be baptized by John, but yet we find that they did not accept Jesus. Uh, We see in Matthew 3, if you go back to Matthew 3, that in Matthew 3, 5, that many were coming out to him, and the many were coming out to him were being baptized by him. So if there were that many being baptized by him, then one would assume, or hope at least, if we were just reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time and we didn't know what was happening, that we'd say, well, wow, I mean, it really does look like the people are going to prepare themselves for the Lord, but we know that they don't. One wonders if their baptism was, in fact, like we just saw in Israel, that it was temporary. One could see an emotional rise, you know, like a New Year's resolution. I need, you hear John's message and you're like, oh man, I am a sinner. I need to repent. And, but, and you get baptized. You go through the ritual. But a few days later, after you're back at your home, back in your normal life, that you actually didn't, it was just an emotional response and not a real change. So in verse 7 now, he saw uh, when he, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him for baptism, he said to them, now notice how diplomatic John is here, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, here, the call to repentance again, 
which is our topic for today. And the repentance is to the Pharisees and Sadducees to... Now, he gets a little more specific here. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, repentance, as we just said, could be temporary and therefore of the lips, so to speak. In other words, I I said I'm going to change. I really desire to change, but there's no fruit of it. The fruit would be the manifestation of the change. And so that's what he says to them. Don't come down here saying you're going to repent just with lips, but bear the fruit of it. But then he says something else, which is something that is um, what the Lord had to deal with over and over in his ministry. And he had to refute this and point out to the Israelites that just because you're born of Abraham, in other words, you're a Jew, does not mean that you will uh, be saved or delivered from judgment to come. And that was a general belief as we see here. It's also, we find it in John chapter 8, that when Jesus had to speak to them, they, they said, well, we're, you know, Abraham's our father and we have nothing to worry about. So they, John says to them, don't say to yourselves that we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. All right, so... First off, just real quick in, in the few minutes we have left, is, you know, is John being a little too harsh on them here? He's definitely being harsh. I'd say, in fact, acidic in his words. But um, it says that the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, are the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptized? Well, we've got some Greek structure here that we could go into, and after teaching for about 45 minutes, I don't think people want to hear Greek structure, but uh, it could mean that they're coming to baptism or to the baptism. Uh, As we saw in verse 6, the people were being baptized. A bit ago, I told you to please remember that, that it was passive. That when the people come to John, they are being baptized or were being baptized by John. We don't actually have that construction here. We don't even have a passive voice. We don't even have a verb. It just says that they're coming to the baptism or for the baptism. So if you were to say to somebody, like the Greek literally says they they were coming for the baptism or to the baptism. If I said, hey, are you coming to the baptism? That does in no way indicate that you're being baptized. It might mean that you're being baptized, but it might not. The second, now on top of that, we have John's words, which, you know, he he references the image of them being snakes scurrying away from an encroaching fire. Like, that's a pretty rough image. I, the um, the do not suppose uh, where in the um, uh, uh, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That's where it is. You know, you brood of really you group of snakes who are running from fire. Um, pretty stark image, and so it makes it fairly clear that 
they're not really coming to be baptized by John. And even if they were, John has already seen and figured out that they're just doing this as for, you know, not, in to, be, not to be really being repentive. So there's good reason here that is a, this becomes actually a message for us that the world is going to seek out and persecute the truth. And if the truth comes from you, then they're going to seek you out and persecute you. Eventually. I'm not saying every single day, but eventually. They come out to John to see what he's doing. They come out to persecute him. They come out to discredit him. And uh, John understands this. And so we learn a quick lesson here. It's a lesson that we already know, but it always bears repeating. That the world is going to seek out and persecute the truth. If you keep your mouth shut, if you don't reveal the truth, if you are not a light to the world, then you're set. They're not going to persecute you. They're not going to seek you out. But remember, and we're going to, now the next chapter, which will start probably next week, is that right after this comes the temptation of the Lord in the wilderness by the devil. That's not by mistake that Matthew puts that. So does Luke puts it right after the baptism. After Jesus begins, when Jesus is about to begin the ministry, which is an overt declaration of who he is and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the devil is going to tempt. The devil is going to seek you out and persecute you. So John's response, they, and this again, this is another thing that, that Jesus had to, and Jesus and John had to refute, which was the fact that they concluded that since we're Jews, we're all set. And that is not the case. Uh, John says something terrific here, that God could make Jews out of rocks. Basically, uh, John's response is that God could make children of Abraham out of rocks. The implication is that man, on his own without God, is really no better than a rock. And actually worse off. Because a rock can't be judged. A rock doesn't hold a moral ground. A rock can't repent. But a man can. Mankind, Jews and Gentiles, are responsible for their decision for or against Christ. Stones are not. And so we're actually in a more dire place. But what John says here is that you know, God can make people out of anything. The fact that you're a person is not what matters. It's the fact that you accept your Lord. That's what matters. So true repentance exists in our world. It's more rare than the temporary kind. It's true repentance and the temporary kind. In the temporary kind, the heart is not changed. So we have to ask the question, how is the heart changed? Um, well, I can, I, the way that the heart is changed is faith, but not just any faith. It's faith in the truth. Um, when you, Things like you realize that God has a plan for your life and you're not living it. I mean, a real plan that's important that uh, will result in eternal glory 
and you're missing it, that creates change. People will assent to that and say, well, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. But in their heart, they don't really believe it. Because if they did, they'd pursue it. Not saying they'd be sinless. They'd fumble and bumble along the way. But they'd pick themselves back up and get right after it because they would realize how important it is and how wonderful it is. And that, so therefore, change comes from faith in the truth. The heart is changed by truth. So, as the writer of Hebrews puts, everybody knows the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces through the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It changes us. But it doesn't change us without faith. That's Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 11, we see the manifestation that Hebrews 11 is the hall of fame of those who were faithful in the Old Testament. Change is faith. Temporary repentance is emotion. True repentance is faith in the truth. Temporary repentance is emotion. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotion, but if that's all you have and you don't have faith and, uh, sorry, faith, truth and faith in that truth, then emotion is only going to, emotions like, uh, like bad gasoline. You know, it'll get you going a few steps and then it clogs everything up. I know a pastor who frequently says, God seeks heart transformation and not behavior modification. God seeks heart transformation and not behavior modification. In temporary repentance, emotions are aroused. And one becomes tired of the pain, becomes tired of the result of their bad decisions. But nothing of value is really changed in the heart. All they want is a change of circumstance. And that's an emotional plea. But they haven't really seen the truth, of which that's when true change comes. So John is preaching repentance to Israel, and he's teaching not just, he's not just saying repentance as we see here uh, and in, in the rest of the other Gospels, that he is teaching Isaiah, the, uh, the book of Isaiah. He's teaching the prophecies of Isaiah, and the people know those prophecies. And in those prophecies, they know that when the Lord comes, something real is going to happen. And in Isaiah 40, who John is quoting, the mountains are going to be mowed down and the valleys are going to be lifted up. And that is something like every Jew knows that that is the Lord coming with the judgment. And in judgment, some are judged and some are blessed. Because judgment also means that if you have turned your heart, if you have accepted the Lord, if you've believed in the Lord, and then come judgment day or the day of the Lord, you're blessed. But if you have rejected the Lord, you're cursed. And the people know this. So, repentance can be temporary or it can be a real change of heart. The greatest change that has ever happened to any human being has been the baptism, not of John, and not even of the water baptism of the church, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're, on Sunday we'll look at the baptism of our Lord and then see how that ties to our baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the grace, mercy, love, and truth that you bring to us through your word. Thank you for the opportunity to repent. What an awesome privilege and an awesome opportunity to know that we can change and that you help us with this change. It's not something we didn't get that far today to see how you help. Uh, we're not on our own to change. You help us, but you can't force that change on us. There has to be a faith in your truth. And when that faith comes, we are and will be changed. We pray, Father, that that happen to every one of us. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.